Every day that we have what we have today, I'm happy because I know tomorrow we may not have that. Yeah, you know, we're thankful and grateful for what we have while we have it. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Connecting ALS. I am your host, Jeremy Holden. For the past several weeks, in recognition of ALS Awareness Month, we have been bringing you stories of some of the people who are doing whatever it takes to make ALS a livable disease and ultimately finding cures. We kicked off the month hearing from Stephen Kaufman, the new chair of the ALS Association's Board of Trustees. Steve shared his vision on how far we've come in the fight and where the fight to create a world without ALS goes from here. We also heard from Dr. Melinda Cavanaugh, whose research into sleeplessness among children who serve as caregivers is shining a light on some of the work that needs to be done to reduce harms associated with the disease. And that, of course, is one of the key pillars to making ALS livable. And we heard from Jim Essie, whose family responded to his mother's ALS by establishing the Sheila Essie Award for ALS Research, which helps advance the search for more treatments and cures. And it takes all of those people to continue the momentum in the fight to empower people with ALS to live longer lives on their own terms. For my guests this week, Ellen and Lorenzo Trujillo, that means adapting to the changes when they come while trying to maintain focus on what they can do today. I had a chance to talk with them about their ALS journey. Well, Ellen, Lorenzo, thank you so much for being with us here this week on Connecting ALS. You bet. Thank you for having us. Very happy to have you on the show and to be able to share your story with listeners. For folks who may not have had an opportunity to to get to know you or hear your story, um, why don't we start off by introducing yourselves and telling us a little bit about your connection to ALS. Okay. Um, my name is Ellen Alaris Trujillo, and I was diagnosed with ALS in uh, about February of 2020. And at that time, it was during COVID, of course. So um, actually, so I ended up you know, being videotaped by a neurologist at University of Colorado Health Sciences Center. And when I started having, you know, cramping in my feet, and then that progressed to multiple falls and uh, was really concerning as to what was going on. And so that... Uh, you know, through a series of, uh, um, you know, meetings with neurologists and then finally going to the Mayo Clinic because I wasn't getting the answers that I needed, uh, that I was diagnosed with ALS. And, um, and then promptly after that, contacted, you know, the Rocky Mountain chapter, and that's how I got hooked up with ALS. I'm glad the Rocky Mountain chapter folks were there for you in this time. Sounds like it was... A bit of a lengthy diagnosis. I've we've heard stories from folks that you know anywhere from a year, um, several months, different appointments. Uh, but talk to me a little bit about what was going through your mind as you're having follow up appointments and and going through that process of elimination to try to figure out what was going wrong. Well, initially, I wasn't I wasn't quite sure what was happening. I had had a uh, double knee replacement two years prior to starting to have these cramping in my feet. And so initially I thought it was, it was something having to do with my knees. And so contacted my doctor and we did, you know, I saw him and then contacted a foot doctor and the foot doctor sent me 
to a nerve doctor and then the nerve doctor did some tests and then sent me to a back doctor and then I had more tests and then eventually I, I did get hooked up with a neurologist who um, during that period of time, like I said, we, we weren't able to see anybody in person initially. And so he just thought that maybe I was um, in the beginning stages of Parkinson's and so gave me medication for Parkinson's and said, you know, take this. And if you have Parkinson's, you'll start, you know, see some improvement from these medications. And if not, you won't. And we can see you in person in like about three months. And so I took the medication and saw no improvement. I was having these other falls and I just wasn't getting better. So when I went in to see the doctor, you know, I was told at that time that maybe I hadn't taken the medication long enough and probably also needed to have a higher dosage of medication. And then I began to question that because it just everything that I was seeing in the research and stuff didn't it just it just didn't jive with what I was finding. And so I asked for I, I realized that I there was a DAT scan that I could do. And so I asked for that to be done. And so he agreed, I think kind of reluctantly agreed, but he did agree to have it done. And that came back normal. And then they still just wanted me to take more medication and a higher dosage of medication. And when we couldn't come to an agreement around me doing that because it wasn't doing me any good, then we sort of parted ways and we contacted Mayo Clinic. And that's when we went to uh, Rochester, had a whole battery of tests over there. And that's when they said they thought I probably had ALS. And that's kind of how that came to be then. Hearing your story, I just think of so much of the work that is being done to speed up that time to diagnosis, because unfortunately it's echoed in so many of the other stories that we've been able to share. What did you know about ALS at the time of your diagnosis? Uh, almost nothing. I actually had heard of Lou Gehrig's and that I knew about it, but almost knew nothing nothing from there. So I started doing some research around that. And, you know, I wanted to know enough. But once I got the diagnosis, I didn't want to know too much. So yeah. part of me was reluctant in the sense that I, I wanted to know enough to help myself. But I don't want to look too far into the future either. So yeah, but I knew very little about Lou Gehrig's disease. Lorenzo, I want to bring you in on the conversation. What, what's going through your mind at this time of trying to figure out the diagnosis and then eventually learning that it was a diagnosis of ALS? Well, the first diagnosis of Parkinson's, uh, especially after she had the DAT scan and we found no lesions in her brain and we found, and she was not having any, no tremors, none of the Parkinson's manifestations. Their diagnosis uh, just really, and, and their unwillingness to look further really made both of us very unhappy, angry. And so we were very fortunate to get into the Mayo Clinic and um, find out what we didn't want to know. 
Yeah. Uh, you know, we, we, they said, you know, you probably have ALS and they were very, they're very gentle and very nurturing. Uh, first reaction was denial, uh, you know, and, and then also a feeling of that, you know, this was not something Ellen spent her whole life as a very rigorous athlete and very active uh, in the community and and all of a sudden this thing came tumbling down on us she actually had a fall in washington dc when we were at a conference and it was uncharacteristic of her because she would always walk 10 times faster than me and uh she was walking and she was going at a good pace and she took a major tumble unlike her and of course our third first thoughts were her first thoughts were maybe it's the tennis shoes maybe it was something else but it really wasn't it was unlike her her legs just buckled uh and of course she thought maybe it was her knees but her knees had been operating at full bore all after the surgery so it was denial it was um lack of knowledge major lack of knowledge and wishing to know more you referenced life before the diagnosis tell me a little bit about that what you know you were working you have family you know bring me into the life before diagnosis before even onset of symptoms oh our life our life is still full sure we've made a choice of that but but it was it was we were active in community organizations in the national bar associations. I was a national speaker in different events around the country. Ellen was one of the most sought after authorities in the area of elder law. And um, we had, uh, she had just retired. And so she came into my law firm and we were going to really, we are going to kill it with, you know, uh, her doing uh, elder law and me doing estate probate and business law. And, and uh, all of a sudden, everything came to, well, we thought maybe we could still do a little bit. It was coming to a screeching halt. And it has, the time has accelerated for the screeching halt. And our learning curve, we've had to learn so much, whether how to just in simple things of mobility issues or equipment and uh, but um and, and we would love traveling well there there's that in a nutshell of course you know a blessing and a condemnation at the same time was the pandemic right sure. so suddenly we were stuck at home but that was probably really good because it lessened the negative impact of what happened to us all of a sudden we were going like uh super jet flying and flying high and all of a sudden we we're grounded in a big way and so when people have this happen to them wherever they are at in life whether in our situation or our, our situation with our children and grandchildren you know everything changes everything changes i've had to learn how to cook maybe <laughs> yeah. And uh and just issues like 
food spoilage, you know, I, you know, sure. I just keep food in the fridge, you know, until you eat it. And I found <laughs> out you can't do that. You know, yeah. I mean, I wait till it had green stuff on it. You know, <laughs> and then you don't need it. Right. <laughs> no, you do not. You absolutely do not. Yeah, you know, you absolutely do not. But see, Ellen always took care of all that stuff. And all of a sudden she couldn't take care of it. And all of a sudden I was running to the grocery store and I didn't know how to get around in the grocery store and finding things. And, and of course she wanted particular items and, and I figure, you know, I figure yogurt's yogurt, right? Cheese is cheese, right? And it's not, she wanted this kind of, so I've had to learn stuff that my learning curve is I'm no longer in the law and I'm, I'm also a musician. Right. Right. Yeah. Tell me about the performances that you both were a part of. Well, Ellen was, she was like Bambi out in the field dancing and she was, she was a beautiful dancer. And we have videos of that dancing traditional New Mexico, Hispanic dances uh, of the 1840s, the shoddishes, the waltzes, the polkas, all of that. And she was just so light and so graceful. And the videos are just fond memories of that. And, and I'm a violinist, guitarist, and vocalist. And I, I play that music. I also play in mariachi. And I teach at the university. I teach music at the university. All of a sudden, I didn't have a dancer. All yeah. of a sudden, she couldn't do those things. In fact, this last summer, you know, she went with us because I tour. I tour definitely throughout the state and somewhat beyond that. But, you know, suddenly she's on the sidelines and she's not out there doing it. So, yeah. Yeah. So it's been a, it's been a real learning curve for both of us. It's been a real change in our life. Um, yeah. So every day is a new, uh, is a new day and we're learning something new all the time. What you say every day is a new day. Tell me a little bit about your progression where, you know, you two years, roughly a little over two years since your diagnosis. Yeah. What, what has your progression been like? Uh, well, I'm now in a wheelchair. So I have, uh, I'm not mobile anymore. I can, uh, I can stand a little bit. So I can stand, you know, for short periods of time. But other than that, I just, just actually got a, motorized wheelchair uh, recently in the past you know, few weeks. And so learning how to use that without sure. running into walls or, or scraping the doors or, you know, and then we got a van, we've gotten a van so that we can still go places. So just trying to go day to day. So I do have some issues with my right hand. I'm right hand dominant. And so that's been um, that's been uh, difficult. So I'm I'm learning to use my left hand, which is also seeing some problems with it. But you know we're we're doing the best we can. Yeah. Let, let's talk about your question about progression. Sure. You know, and and she said every day is a new day. Every day that she can stand up, I mean literally just stand up. I'm so thankful to God because I know the day's coming when she can't stand up. But every day I have to learn something new. Every day what I knew before doesn't work the next day. And so every day I don't know what I'm going to be faced with or what her needs are going to be. And everything from one day she's 
taking care of feeding herself and cutting her own food. And the next day she can't cut her food. So the progression is such that it's strange. It's a cruel disease. It's very cruel because every day we wake up to see, okay, okay, God, what surprise are you going to bring us now? You know, what are you going to take away? So now I don't take anything for granted. The fact that she can kind of stand up, the fact that she can sit on the toilet, the fact that she can feed herself every day. I, I just, I, I'm so happy about that. And I worry about the next day when that doesn't come because it becomes, how do I adapt to that? And how do I keep her happy? And how do I keep us both in a mental state? And she's really good at this, you know, how do we stay in a mental state of we're okay and we have today, you know, just, just being grateful for what we have for today, you know, and it's every day, like you said, when I wake up in the morning, it's like, okay, thank you. I'm on my feet again, you know, and I can transfer, I can transfer from a walker to the wheelchair or whatever, maybe with some additional help, but so, yeah. So although it's been a slow but steady progression so far, I'm grateful for what we can continue to do right now. I'm not having any breathing issues, so I'm really grateful for that. I can still communicate. I'm grateful for that. And I know different people deal with different issues, you know, depending on where it gets started. So there's something to give thanks for every day, you know. And let me tell you something for you, the listeners, that's really important. Please. Her girlfriend is her sister. They've spent many years together. She's the blessing in our life. And when Ellen's angry with me or just angry at life and or I'm just tired, Julie comes in and Julie can talk to both Mm -hmm. of us. And Julie can take care of her. There's only two of us that she trusts. She's got trust issues, mm-hmm. major trust issues, <laughs> and very a lot of privacy okay. issues. And so Julie and I are the only two that can handle those mm-hmm. things. Now, my sister, is uh, she's wonderful, and she comes in and helps too. But we start going down the ladder of the highest level of trust and privacy going down to lower levels. Sure. And and we actually hired a, a caretaker to come in part part of the time. Yeah. And we do have a, a good support system, too. Mm-hmm. My daughter lives close here. She's got three young kids, you know, so they continue to come and help out where they can. But, yeah, I mean, it's just a major change of life for all of us she has all of us she has a girlfriend that comes in every other week and gives her a massage because she's in pain the pain of the the cold feet and hands you know sometimes we don't sleep all night because she's either moaning and groaning with pain or she's having me move her the very act of just moving her body and her legs you know because she can't yeah. And they hurt. So, you know, it's it's every day, every day that we have what we have today. I'm happy because I know tomorrow we may not have that. Yeah. So that's what I mean, that we, uh, you know, we're thankful and grateful for what we have while we have it. 
It, it sounds like you have a tremendous community of people, family, friend, and close friends that are present and are engaged, um, and that's so meaningful. You've talked about not wanting to know too much about the future, but living in the moment, but then also this almost anticipation of what is tomorrow going to look like. So how do you strike a balance between not wanting to know too much, but knowing that you have to be prepared for what's around the next corner? Yeah. Yeah. Like I said, not looking too, too far ahead because, you know, if you do, it can lead for me anyway, it can lead to a dark hole and I don't want to get there um, because there's, there's too much that I still want to do. I love going to my grandson's baseball games and my yeah. granddaughter's volleyball games. And I've got a lot of games to go to. And so, you know, I, I'm not going to look ahead and think that someday I won't be able to do that. Although I know that that's a possibility. But for right now, you know, I want to know what's potentially coming and prepare for that you know, in the sense of we put a lift so that we could do that, you know, have a lift in our house when the time came for us to meet it for the van. And we're getting a BiPAP machine pretty soon. And I know that, you know, there's a a few issues there, but not enough to where I need it right now, but being prepared for that. Just kind of knowing what's coming, but like I said, not looking so far ahead to where I can let myself get depressed. I, I don't want to go there. And so I try to um, I try to stay as positive as I can. You, know? you mentioned earlier the um, interactions you've had with the ALS Association out there in the Rocky Mountain community. Talk to me a little bit more about the interactions you've had and the support that you've received. Yeah. Um, Right in the very beginning, as soon as I got the diagnosis, I reached out to um, Suzanne at ALS Society, and she responded fairly quickly right away, and then pointed me to resources and pointed me to lots of things, you know, a support group that was, was going on, an educational group that they do once a month. So I really appreciated that. Because I, like I said, I knew very little about the disease. And so, you know, they just sort of reached out to me and then spoke to me about a closet that they had, you know, of items that, you know, would be helpful to me. Right in the very beginning, they let us use a wheelchair. I needed the, I can't remember where we were going. Oh, we were going out of town on one of his trips. And so I was already having some trouble walking. I was using a cane at that time. And I knew that there were a lot of places I was not going to be able to make it. So, you know, reached out to them. And so they were able to help us out with, you know, just little equipment things that I needed right in the very beginning. And and they've continued to do that, actually. You know, whenever we have questions, we'll shoot an email to Suzanne or ask the question on one of the support groups and, you know, people offer a lot of advice and Suzanne and her staff, the rest of the staff too, are willing to reach out to us. And so I've just really appreciated what they've been doing for us. 
Uh, I'm glad to hear all that. We're talking here uh, in the middle of ALS Awareness Month, and, and it sounds like it's been a learning process for you from first system onset uh, until today. But what is something as you think about ALS Awareness Month that, or you know, a few things that you wish people, as we're raising awareness for people who may not think about this day in and day out, what's something that you want folks to know to take away from this conversation? I got to tell you, at my 70 years of life, I knew about, you know, from baseball stuff, Lou Gehrig's disease, clueless, totally clueless. And I had no idea of how ravaging and impactful in people's lives this disease is. Because in other diseases, you go through a treatment plan and either you get better or you die. Or in this one, it's like a, a slow, steady, scraping away of life. The book that I found most meaningful in my journey was uh, Being Mortal. Have you read that book? I have not. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's an important book for anybody that, that has this or any other disease or an a- aging parents. You know, so now when I see people, I, I look at them and they have ALS in their family. I kind of wonder what stage of grief and grieving they are at. Because when somebody dies, you have a trajectory of so many stages of grieving. Right. This is prolonged getting whipped with a bullwhip. You just get continue getting whipped and, and, and there's no out and there's no end. But what I found at the same time is every moment we have is a precious moment. Mm. And so we try to make the most of it. And like she said, she went with me when I was on tour last summer. And although she wasn't dancing and although she wasn't interacting, she was on the sideline. And she was there and we had a great time. We saw different places, ate at different places and uh, stayed in a pioneer kind of facility, uh, you know, the 1840s kind of place. Sure. So, yeah, but, you know, I don't know if there's a way to explain to people, because even if people would have explained to me before, I would not have had an idea. And unfortunately, a person has to go through it either themselves or on a secondary basis or know somebody. Otherwise, there's no way to know what ALS is and how difficult it is for the person and the people around. Ellen was one of the most confident, strong-willed people probably ever to walk this planet. Now she gets in this power chair and she's afraid. She's, she's afraid to get in the van. She's afraid to go down the ramp. She's afraid to go out on terrain. And so I find myself having to be, you know, tell, do it, do it. Why you don't understand. You don't understand. I want you to do it. Trying to give her the courage because everything for her becomes now, does she have the courage to yeah. do it? Well, I think it's because there's such a learning curve. Sure. Well, my grandson's got into this power chair that has a joystick on it, right? And yeah. no problem. They were raised on, you know, games, video games. Sure. Yeah, they've got these things. And I'm sitting here and I'm pushing this thing and all of a sudden it's taking off on me. So, 
yeah, there's been a learning curve here. So yeah, it causes me a little bit of anxiety, but we're progressing little by little. I got into the patio this this morning with an occupational therapist and, you know, and that involved going down this ramp, which, you know, I learned that if I put the power chair back and lift myself up a little bit higher, it's not as scary as looking like you're torpedoing down this ramp. So yeah, everything's just kind of a learning curve, but Lorenzo spoke to this book, Being Mortal. And so I guess if I would want the ALS community to know something, it's it's that the quality of life is so much more important. This book talks about, you know, looking for a cure that sometimes doesn't come. And that in the midst of all that, that, you know, finding your best life, however that is, and however that's going to happen is so important. You know, what makes you happy? You know, what are the things that bring you joy? Those are the things that you got to look for on a daily basis. Because like I said, I I don't want to get down and depressed because that only brings the people around me down and depressed as well. And so for me, it's important to stay on top of on top of that with meditation, with prayer, with energy healing. I've tried it all so far. You know, I'm just kind of reaching out. I'm not opposed. I'd, I'd love to have a medication that provided a cure. That's not happening right now. So, you know, I'm willing to try alternative methods and whatever works just to kind of keep me going on a day-to-day basis. Well, it's truly inspiring to hear your story, and I'm sure that listeners are equally moved by your message. Um, Ellen and Lorenzo, thank you so much for your time this week. You're welcome. Thank Thank you. you. Thank you. I want to thank my guests this week, Ellen and Lorenzo Trujillo. Be sure to check out their profile at ALS.org, and we will include a link to that profile in the show notes. I wanted to let you know that registration is now open for the ALS Association's annual advocacy conference. Every year, hundreds of advocates come together to discuss public policy priorities that can accelerate the search for treatments and cures, optimize current treatments, and help prevent or delay harms associated with ALS. And every day, they'll be taking direct action to advance our legislative priorities. Due to visitor restrictions at the Capitol building, this year's event will be virtual. In addition, the FDA is on the brink of determining whether to approve AMX35, a promising new treatment shown to be safe and effective. And it's not too late for you to tell FDA to approve this treatment, so please go to als.org slash FDA to learn more. Our production partner for this series is Citizen Racecar. Post-production by Garrett Tiedemann, production management by Gabriella Montekin, supervised by David Hoffman. That's going to do it for this week's episode. Thank you for tuning in, and we'll connect with you again soon.